0: Scripture comes this morning from uh, 1 Samuel 10, 26 through chapter 11 and 15. So Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and with him met men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jebesh Gilead. And all the men of Jebesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, "Give us 7 days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if no one, if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you." Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul they reported the matter in the ears of the people and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen and Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Gibesh. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah and went with him And with him went men of valor. I read that already, didn't I? And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them back at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day, and those who survived were scattered, so that no two men of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, uh, Shall Saul rule over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men rejoiced greatly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: to my beautiful wife and mother of our two boys. Thank you for uh, leading us in worship, Kelly, and reading the scripture. And um, I'm Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church. And um, just so you know, it is not easy to read scripture after you've been involved in other things in the worship service, especially as you saw here today when the Lord Spirit uh, works in you and falls on you. Um, Sometimes it's hard to transition. It's hard to get into it. Um, And so I want to just give us time to, to pause and get our hearts and minds ready for the preaching of God's word. thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord. Today we look at chapter 11 here in 1 Samuel, mostly chapter 11, a little piece of chapter 10. And I thank Pastor Hill, Omari Hill, who was leading worship today, and Pastor Josh Kim for preaching the last couple of weeks while I was away. in a, in, in a safe place, of course. And uh, last week, Pastor Kim's sermon showed us how Israel demanded a king like the other nations had. And we saw how God gave them a king in Saul, their first king. And though Saul looked like, the Bible says, what they wanted, all tall and all, he was a king short order waffle house meal for people who were already suffering heart disease before the Lord. Saul so was that bad cholesterol, right? Uh, it, as a king, he, he tastes good going down. He looked good. He smelled good. But he would end up clogging their relationship with the Lord in his leadership. He was like Sam Bowie. Y'all know who that is? He was drafted first in two spots ahead of Michael Jordan in the 1984 draft. That's Saul, right? Saul was the king a la Gladys Knight who was good to you, but not good for you. The story of Saul is a complicated story like many leaders in many situations in the Bible and in our world. And it is in chapter 11 that we see this rookie king, chapter 11, have his first, and let me say, only breakout performance, which God uses to show his people what and how it would be like if God was not only the king of their king, but also the Lord of his people's affections. That God himself was the it factor they need and we all need. That we need him to come into our story filled with enemies, right? That we have enemies within, without broken, the shortcomings, pain and suffering. That God would take it and own it as his story which he does in three ways we can see from our scripture today. Number one, the Lord exposes our broken stories. Secondly, the Lord exerts himself into our story. And finally, the Lord gives himself for our story. Broken is a... um, a good way to describe the situation in Israel at the time. Lots of fractures uh, were there between the 12 tribes who occupied different geographical areas. Uh, There is partisanship that comes up a lot between the tribes with not so good history between them. They're also divided by which enemies they face. So if you were to look at the kingdom and you were to look at the enemies, if if you were on the west side of the kingdom, on the left side of the kingdom, you would face, for the most part, the Philistines. And most of Israel was on the west side, right? The larger cities and the religious and social centers were on the west side. But if you were on the east side, you had to deal with your grumpy and bitter cousins, the the Ammonites, who came from an incestuous, illegitimate branch of Israel. They they were the result of Lot, Abraham's son, Lot and his daughter, Lot's daughter and him, having relations which resulted in the rejection of the Ammonites as true Israel. And it resulted in bitter relationships between them and the nation of Israel. Let me let you know, there is plenty of historic and family drama and brokenness all over the place in this story before us. In this fragmented nation with no recognized leadership, either in their God or in their king, somebody they can all trust on, the people of Jebesh, the ones on the east side, right? We're we're occupying and living in a space where, how does Doughboy put it? They don't show and they don't know They don't care about, nobody care about nothing going on on the east side, right? The east side of Israel. They are besieged by the Ammonites, verse 1 says, which means they they are trapped, y'all. They are paralyzed. They are stuck with no way out because they are forgotten, right? They are left behind. They they left out there. They're, They're broken off. They plain out alienated from where their help would come from. Besieged by shame that some of us uh, are, are, are familiar with it's the kind of shame right that, that says that no one cares about you right that they're besieged that, that you are alone in fact no one values you in your struggle enough to come and help you no one is willing or able to be there for you in your space and in your place that, that you know what you might be too far gone you are you are too far away you you're too far out there so so Surrender. Collapse. Just, just give in. Just give yourself over to whatever it is that is oppressing you. So under siege, the Bible says things get so bad that the people of Jabesh ask to become a commonwealth of the Ammonites, right? To, to to basically let like let the king of Ammon, Nahash, be their king they basically wave the white flag. They, they have no help. It's almost like they give into this slavery and bondage because like us at times, like you and me at times, they are feeling alienated, right? They're feeling orphaned and separated from God's grace and salvation and security and his people in a fallen world. Right? Because of the real life circumstances and suffering they are facing and experience, they kind of go ahead and, and give in to the suffering and oppression as normal, right? And give into to the Ammonites by making a deal with them to surrender, to shame. And get this, the king of Ammon rejects the offer of a commonwealth and says... Let me tell you what I'm going to do instead. I'm going to gouge out the right eyes of all the men in Jabesh, and then we'll be straight. Right, which if you understand the way war would work, um, you put your shield over your right side, which would make them defenseless in battle and unable to go to battle, seeing that they would put their shield over, um, sorry, their left eye when they fought. He wanted to do what verse two says, not to rule them, but to disgrace them to take their humanity away. Hear me, those folks are not only alienated from help, but from hope, right? I mean, look at how Saul, but not only, right, the, the city of Jabesh and the people of Jabesh are not the only ones alienated from hope who are struggling with broken stories. I mean, look how Saul is described here. Let's start back at, in chapter 10 at verse 27. And so this is after Saul is um, uh, anointed, if you will, ordained, if you will, pointed out by Samuel the prophet and judge to be king. Look, at what happens here. It says, but some worthless fellows said, that worthless means they ain't got nothing good to say, right? They, 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 just, they just hate it, okay? They hate it, right? They say, uh, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But look at this, but Saul held his peace. And then look at verse 11, I mean, chapter 11, verses 4 and 5 here. This is real interesting. It says when the the situation about with Jabesh comes out, that that they are in trouble, um, Jabesh gets an opportunity um, to send messengers back to their people on the west side about what's going on. And and this is what happens. Uh, The the word comes out in verse 4, it says... um, that when the messengers came to Gabeah of Saul, that's where Saul lived, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now listen to this description. Now behold, Saul, the, the, remember, Saul Saul the king, Saul the king, right? Already a king, was coming from the field. Y'all see that? That, That's a real weird description of someone who's the king. He coming out of the field, not ahead of the oxen, right? All these little pieces make sense. I mean, it come together in the book of Samuel. They do this on purpose. But behind an oxen, right? He's just a working common person and he overhears what is going on. A couple things to see here. They don't go to Saul as if he's the king who can help with the news. He's not recognized as their hope. Like the worthless men, they they sort of believe they have no hope in him. Also, Saul himself, I mean, think about this guy. He has alienated himself from being the hope and help that he was anointed to be. The Bible tells us back in chapter 10 that after he was anointed, the first thing Saul did, go back home right? Go back home. Go back to his life. He doesn't go to the White House, if you will. He goes back to his home state to work in the field. Why? Because he believed and was besieged himself by what he was hearing from his own people. Back in verse 27, you ain't the one. He was alienated and broken from who and what God had called him to be. We'll come back to this, but but look at the response of the people when they hear about Jabesh in verse 4. It says here, they hear about what's going on, the city under siege. And when the messengers came um, to Gibeah of Saul, to Saul's city, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people got on their horses and went and rescued. Nope, that ain't what it said. Let, let, let's, let, let's, let's declare war on Ammonites. That ain't what it said. It said they cry aloud. Now again, uh, th- this, I'm sorry, I'm looking down around the room like I'm in a church. I'm sorry, y'all. Uh, but th- they-, they cry aloud, right? It's almost like they cry like, oh, well, we said too bad. Like our cousin's going to die. We're going to have a bunch of cousins without their right eyes right? Like this this whole thing is a cluster and crash of broken stories separated and alienated from the help and hope of the Lord. Everybody. And so they surrender as a people to live oppressed and used and dehumanized and fearful and apathetic. Or On the other side, just just a little piece here, like the Ammonites who've been rejected as true Israel, they've become evil and broken and twisted to deal with a history of hurt and rejection caused by someone else's sin. I mean, like them. We've all felt hopeless and helpless in our situation personally and historically. And we've all felt like we are left trying to to make deals with life, right? Just just compromising. Like some people say, we're just trying to get by, man. We, we're just trying to stay alive. We're just trying to keep hope alive. We're trying to make something out of nothing. And the, deal, and the problem is the world doesn't make deals. This fallen world, like the Ammonites, is about shaming and dismantling our humanity that God has given us. It is safe to say we we often find ourselves, y'all, on the east side of the promised land. On the east side of the promised land, where we're so far gone from hope and help. Like Jabesh, many of us have have just given in the vices. We've given in to insecure and bad relationships, given up on our marriages or personal chastity and dignity. We've even accepted poor perceptions of ourselves and begin living like that, right? In depression and apathy. And some of us are ruled as addicts and slaves who are paralyzed by a sense of no hope and no help. And like Saul and his people, here's the hard thing, y'all. We believers today have become, or are in danger of becoming, a whole community and generation who I see are so disappointed with God and their faith, right? Uh, so scary. And metaphorically, as a church, right? Uh, as, a, as, a, as a community, we're so divided into East and West issues that guess what? We can't even be relied on and looked to for hope and help. We aren't even looked to for mercy and justice for anyone, we are so often, you know, when you think about Christians, right, and believers, so often we are apathetic, discouraged, lacking movement, right? We like to cry a lot. Like, I remember in the Malcolm X movie that Spike Lee put out years ago, they had folk coming out of church, and they said to the folk coming out of church, yeah, you've been on your knees all day in there, but ain't nothing changed out here, right? Right? And we've kind of believed that so much that, 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 that we've become these these enslaved people uh, called Christians and, and the world looks as if they ain't help. They're not gonna do anything. They might hear our news and cry, but will they come? And sometimes we're blinded in one eye by the allure of Christian power grabbing in politics. We're blinded so much. It's gotten so bad that we don't even ask any more of each other. Even in the church where we have, in a church like ours, church membership and vows to care for each other, right? It is so bad we would rather die and let others die than reach out or be willing to feel like nobody cares for us and we ask for help and asking for help, right? What We feel sad for, let me tell you what happens a lot. And I've been a part of it. So when I'm talking about it, I'm like criticizing y'all. I'm criticizing us, right? Because I'm a believer too. That we, sometimes we feel sad for folk. We, this is where we end up, sad a lot and fighting each other a lot, but paralyzed to be help and hope. We are a broken story. But the Lord uses our brokenness as a way, our second point here, of exerting and inserting himself into our story, right? And accomplishing salvation. Look at verse 5 and 7 again with me. It says, Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him about the, the... told them the news of the men of Jabesh, And the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the terror of Israel by the hand of the messenger saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to this so shall it be done to this oxen. Then the Bible says, the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. That means they came out unified in purpose. And then look at verse 13. This is after the victory, right? But Saul said, you know, after they said, let's kill some folk who treated you bad, Saul. Not a man shall be put to death this day. Now hear this. For today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Y'all see that? Notice that Saul says that God worked salvation, right? Again, it was not just the incredible Hulk-like rushing bang and boom of Saul turning into this angry man, right? God was rushing and falling off and in a full backstory of brokenness. See, this isn't just this all of a sudden, out of nowhere intervention by God, right? There there are piles and piles of broken stories as a part of what God is using to deliver his people. In the book of Judges, some of y'all are thinking about this because of the way this one turns out right? In the book of Judges, right before this book, right? There is a terrible story, y'all. Some of y'all remember it. Involving Saul's tribe, right? Jabesh and Israel. The same players in this story, right? And I have a sermon on this in the archive. And, I, you know, back in chapter 19 and 20 and 21. And I'm going to warn you, I'm only giving you the surface details. So, so just hear it as, as, a, as a brief explanation of what happened. But an awful sexual assault occurred in Saul's hometown of Gabeah, Right? That resulted in the death of a woman whose body was then like the ox we see in today's passage, cut up into parts and sent to each of the tribes of Israel who responded like they did here as one man, the Bible says, gathered. I'm sorry, I'm looking around like I got a full church here, gathering to fight. But back then, who were they fighting? Their own tribe in a civil war against which tribe? You guessed it, Saul city. Gabeah of the tribe of Benjamin. So the whole nation gathered as one to fight against Saul's kinfolk in Gabeah, where this thing happened. And after the other tribes killed, the Bible says, 25,000 of Saul's kinfolk, the Benjamites, they made a foolish vow that no other tribe would marry in with Saul's people, the Benjamites, which would have meant the Benjamites would cease to exist. They said, well, what do we do? We can't let Benjamin cease to exist, right? They're still our tribe, even though we had to bring justice on him, right? And so they said, I'll tell you what, there was one tribe, one group of people who failed to fight with us against them. You guessed it, the people of Jabesh." were the ones who are under siege in our story today. They didn't fight against the Benjamites. And so this is what Israel did. They went in, they killed a bunch of people in Jabesh and they gave their wives and their daughters in the marriage with Saul's folk. Why am I saying this? Saul's people were related to the people in Jabesh. How? through terrible tragedy and historic mess. But this also helps us understand why Saul as king may not have been given a, a vote of confidence, right? He's from that tribe of Benjamin when this crazy thing happened. He's also from the tribe of people that we came up against. And if he comes king, he might want revenge on us, right? You know how this works. Saul had... The kindling, y'all, of being part of an abandoned tribe. He, he was from that group that, that was historically looked down upon. And when those worthless dudes clown Saul publicly in verse 27 of chapter 10, you better believe he felt rejection. And I am sure it all mixed in with the historical painful past. And that's why the Bible says Saul did what? He held his peace. Which means this, and it's so easy to overlook, and sometimes you don't understand this if you hadn't been bullied or beat up on or mistreated or historically looked like a a, a suspect before your prospect, right? You, You don't always get a term like hold your peace. It means Saul had every right to box somebody in the face, Right? I'm just using that Charleston trend to box you in your eye, right? But instead, all the history, all the rejection, all the I'm not gonna acknowledge what God has made you, He put it away. He held it, He buried it, He put it on the proverbial wood pile with all that past mess to be burned as fuel on another day. And the felt dread Israel felt from and the dread Israel felt from seeing that ox cut up, it had to touch the nerve and emotion of their historical guilt and shame and pain and called on it, right? Of having to kill and almost extinguish their own brothers in Benjamin. Well, I said all that because I want you to see that there are all these sufferings pains, and injustices in the life of these people. And what God does, you know, let me go back to this. There's all these sufferings in the lives of his people that are like unfilled, y'all, like a cavity, right? Th- that are dried up, like sort of forgotten, it's the past, don't worry about it, but it's dried up on the proverbial wood pile, l- like a piece of fruit, even ripening on the vine, almost crossing over to being rotten. But guess what? They are perfect and just sweet enough, and just dry enough in their suffering, just perfectly desolate for God to pick up on it, to rush in and fall on and fill and inflame with what his plan and purpose to save them. Do you know the base meaning, one of the base meanings of the word passion? Pain suffering it like indelible emotion. It means to be in your feelings about something and have something stuck in your feelings, built up there like like a bruise that won't go away, to to have a weight on your story that if it's pulled or pushed or shaken like a pendulum, it will swing you violently and forcefully in one direction, getting you on the outside or other side of yourself. It will easily ignite you. And often, Like we see in this passage, in our passion, right? In our brokenness is how God exerts and connects to our story, right? He works salvation right there with and in our pain and suffering. He ignites and kindles the fuel of the broken and torn pieces and he takes the divots and crevices of pain and suffering and even neglect and like he does here, he fills and falls into them with powerful grace and then using it, to hear, hear me, to connect to the place and people who are suffering to do it for him, to, to sort of swing us in our passions toward them, to, to use our pain, to carry us to them, To make us feel active empathy and sympathy and act with passion to those who are hopeless and helpless. Ahmaud Arbery. So much anger, so much passion. Like the story today. (laughs) So much historic backstory. So much East side forgetfulness, right? Just not dealt with problems over and over it seems, right? mean, I got people who, who tell me in this situation, they can't even watch the video of this young black man out for a jog who is chased and then gunned down by armed men who were not police officers right? Who said he was resisting arrest. That's why he got shot, right? Who who has just been, you know, and, and after that incident happened in February, an arrest just happened this past week. And I've heard from some of you the passion, right? Why? Because one of you Right? Because you are on the east side of the oppression and history of race and violence and alienation as a people, right? Black men. Our black boys. I was worried about my son riding his bike through our neighborhood. Children. Children. A continuation, of what seems like a devaluing of our lives. Some of you have refused to look, you know, at the, at the idea out of the pain, right? And, and then when your own brothers and sisters of faith, right? Now, let me say this on the West side, culturally, in such things, don't connect with your suffering. Because maybe there's an excuse of, of not knowing everything yet. You, you have no idea how I've heard. Yeah, we seen the video, but we don't see everything in the video. But we, we got to wait for the, the people, we have to wait for the justices to come in and, and figure it out. There is a young man dead in the street, right? No arrest for months, right? Well, well, well we, we don't know enough. like a gouged out right eye. Just can't see it. We don't want to rush to judgment. Or or I, I heard somebody say, yeah, I didn't do anything wrong. And then I hear people say, I don't know what to do. You know what it makes you feel? Not only that there's no hope or help from any of our brothers and sisters around us on the west side of the issue. But you know what it communicates? By extension, that God doesn't have a passion for people like me. That he's just not concerned. When I look at your actions, he, he don't care. You know, but something happened especially on the, on the Group Me message board with our elders and women shepherds. And my wife, Kelly, posted how it felt like a weight was on her chest, so heavy, it, it was hard to let a cry out. And she expressed uh, her pain and, and feeling alienated from help and hope. And she posted a blog from a pastor with some biblical guidance in it. And, and like our passage today, I will say the dread and anger of the Lord fell on and the Holy Spirit impassioned our brothers and sisters, let me say this, on the West side, culturally, of our East side issue. And let me read a comment. I actually took some notes. Let me read a comment um, from from one of our elders. Um, uh, He said, thanks to my sister, Kelly. What a great and thought-provoking article. It truly called me to mourning as well as confession and repentance because of complacency demonstrated by a failure of action. The authors, the, the blog he read, comments regarding a failure to love God and love neighbor as idolatry and oppression of the poor should bring all white Christians to their knees. I need to add to my terminology in that not only am I complacent, but worse, I am also complicit by inactivity against the terrible wrongs and too many more similar occurrences listed in this article. And then a friend of mine, another pastor in the presbytery, he wrote me a text and he said, a day late, but I hobbled up, I hobbled my 2.23 mile run together in honor of the Ahmad, fought back tears thinking of you, the other black men in our presbytery, and my staff men who are the same age as Ahmad connect with y'all. I received a couple more. You know, the pastor at Christ Covenant, Kevin the Young, he wrote me. Thank you, my brother Mark Upton and the pastors at home. Thank you, brothers. Why the passion? Why do they have passion? Not because they are civil rights activists or even completely get it or understand or have all the facts. I believe they are connecting their faith in a Lord that has connected with their suffering in such a way that God has come in their hearts and poured out his concern for others, his heart and his passion for those who are facing issues differently than they do and have, right? Like, like their God in Jesus has done for them where they're able to now own our passion and our pain as their own. That is the core of of justice and acts of justice and mercy God is calling us to. The the passion of God by his Holy Spirit pouring into our hearts and then it's exerted and acted out for the sake of others who are hopeless and helpless. But I want to warn you because human passion in and of itself will just equal and result in hate and fear and depression or like the Ammonites, right? Being tyrannical and sectarian and ornery, all in your feelings, right? It might even mean wanting to get back and revenge over justice and living defensively or on the other extreme being turned over and pushed over like Jabesh and Saul where passion is unmet and dry with apathy, Like Langston Hughes' dream, deferred illustration. Rot into despair, right? Like the people in Saul's town where they're just plain out despairing. Or just being sad and crying without any courage or encouragement to act. Those of you often finding yourself on the east side of care, whether you're a person of color or you're a woman or you're even a black woman in particular, my brothers and sisters struggling with their sexuality, oftentimes you are on the east side of your struggle and we are on the west side not caring. But hear this. God matches and meets the size and season of our story With his passion. Look again at verse 6 and 7. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man, and then back to verse thirteen again. He says this, right? Um, for for today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel, so nobody's going to die today. What's going on? We've seen Saul connect. We've seen the people of Israel gra- gather in unity. But you know what we see? God Himself is connecting and deserting his passion with our passions. Saul is angry. You know why? Because God is personally angry. The people of Israel are dreading because God is dreadfully serious and hurt by his people's sufferings. What does the Bible say? God sees our sufferings and struggles, and then he occupies them, y'all. He pours into them. He shows us that if we, his people, are suffering and angry and depressed and oppressed, he is not only in it, he is feeling it and imposing his divine God-sized hurt, right, for us on the situation. In Romans, it says this, that the Holy Spirit, that it groans for us us, right? And in us, for us, with the sort of divine crying and moaning feeling. But it's more than just crying. It's powerfully communicating God's affection for those who are hurt and oppressed and hopeless and helpless. And his groaning communicates there is help and there is hope because I am suffering and moaning with you. We come to know the power and grace and mercy of God. Guess where, y'all? In our sufferings. In our sufferings, we meet God. We know God because the Lord meets us right there. God is so moved by our brokenness. He finds us and grabs and grips our heart. You don't need to wonder in your darkest places and spaces for you or for others on the other side of issues. Where is God and where can you find him? He is where the hurt and the pain are. Worked into the fabric of life where, where you might not see him, but will, he will eventually erupt and explode and break through with release, relief and rescue and comfort and bring hope and justice and security and love to those who are alienated from his grace, his power, and mercy. Ever, I had people say, so, You know, you ever go to a church and and they just so stiff in there. They ain't crying. They ain't moving. Nine times out of 10, they're living a life that allows them to cover and live above their suffering. They're in a privileged situation. (laughs) You want to see a church praising the Lord? Go to a church where folk are suffering. You know why? Not because they're just, like I said, so in connection with their suffering and their pain. That's the easy way of putting it, right? You know what the problem is? Those poor folk, them black folk, Them folk who have them churches all loud and wild and crying and they stay in there for three hours. We got to get out in one hour or I'm mad, right? I can get everything I need in one hour. And you know, we we, we make fun of it, right? We we look at it and we think that storefront church that stays in there for four hours and they sing the song for two hours and they have testimony service and we laugh about it. Pastor Brown, why you preach so long? You know, all these kind of things. And we get so mad and we don't think we need the Lord. And we say that's because they poor, they don't know no better, they ain't educated. They don't have enough seminary education to put their sermon thoughts in 30 minutes. That ain't what it is, y'all. I got some hard news to hear. You know why folk on the suffering side of things are worshiping in the way they do with emotion and falling apart? Not because they're so more broken than you or I are, because the Lord's Spirit is there. The Lord's Spirit is with them. That's why there is a rushing wind of God's emotion and passion among people who who are suffering, not because they are suffering any worse or or, or because that you don't suffer. It is that the Lord's spirit abides with those who are suffering and calling on him, Lord, the world don't care. I'm hopeless and helpless. You know who I need? I need a Lord and a God and a Holy Spirit who cares, right? Who, who, who feels my pain and God delivers. So we call on the spirit of God. Take my passion and intervene that I not, be given over to fear? That I not be given over to apathy and defensiveness? That I not be paralyzed by my incompetence and ignorance and self-protection? Lord, I might not get it. Lord, I'm scared. Lord, I don't understand. Lord, I am not one of those people. Lord, I too hurt myself to help, right? Is that we call to God? to exert his passion and his understanding and his love for those who are hurting and hopeless. But this story becomes, therefore, the cornerstone and ethic of God's kingdom. When the Israelites saw the cut up ox coming from out of Gabeah. it should have not only reminded them of their brokenness and failure and sin and loving each other like back in the day of judges and their guilt but it should have reminded them of the sacrificial system that says God shows and showed us mercy you know in verse 12 After the victory, it says this. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Now look at this. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. When they saw that ox, said dread fell on them. Of course they were guilty. But it should have also communicated They are partakers in a passion of God for sinners. You see, sounds familiar? It should. Jesus was sent as the sacrificed king who would be cut up and broken for our sins, who much like Saul, he would be like Saul. He, he, He was born to a despised and oppressed people. That God coming in the flesh who came to live on the east side of the human experience of alienation. Jesus became a brother, right? He became, as the Bible says, the son of man. The Bible says to, to, he became a, a brother related to our story of suffering. And then he was overlooked as the one to bring salvation God made him suffer with. And he walked into and among the stories and histories of the most sordid and broken and sinful and oppressed in the land into the Ahmad Arvary's kind of people stuff. And the world, his own in pe- the world and his own people hated him for it. Why is he hanging with them? In the passion of Christ. Jesus denied himself justice for how he was mistreated as a Lord so that we could know God's salvation, so that we can know God's mercy, so that we could experience God's grace, so that we can experience God's power and freedom from shame that was ours and the shame we deserved and do us. Jesus took all the passion with his passion for us and took all the dread on the cross and went to battle for our souls and won us. When Saul brought brought a reprieve, a renewal, a chance to repent, a reconnection, not only with our God, but he connected, right? Jesus connected us with the love and passion necessary to love one another, to serve one another, to fight for one another, to suffer for one another, to fight against injustice and shame and to bring and seek relief for human pain and suffering because we are a people acquainted with the grief, with a Lord who is acquainted with grief and a man of sorrow of our sin and our issues. Believer, I'm on the east side of this thing. Does God care? Does Jesus care? When I'm on the east side of your moral compass, does Jesus care? if I'm on the east side of whatever cultural Christianity you find yourself in or whatever political side you find yourself in, does God care? Believer, does God care? Everything your Lord and Savior Jesus said and did says he does. Pastor Mari this week led us through a study and meditation on Wednesday during our first week fellowship via Zoom. And he asked this question, will after this pandemic or in the middle of it, we don't know what the end of it is really, will we do more than just return and recoup hours? We have the chance during this pandemic, will we rush the table for ourselves? Or will we rebuild, redeem, and restore? Jesus was a man of passion. And he lives within the hearts and lives of believers to restore, to rebuild, to repent, to reach. Because you know that he was solely responsible and passionate enough to rebuild, restore, and renew you from your story into his story. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We either there or we on the other side of sorrow, of pain, of suffering. Thank you for how you've loved us. Lord, when our tears are dried up, yours keep going. When our passion gets cynical. When our passion dries up. Thank you, Lord, for rushing in and bringing fresh wind, fresh fire, fresh rain into the crevices and dry places of where we're hurt, where we're hopeless, and where we're helpless. Lord, I pray for what's going on right now in our nation. On so many fronts. Lord, I do pray for my brothers and sisters who feel like the illegitimate cousins in the Promised Land. Lord, there is a fire to be vindictive and revenge, seek revenge instead of justice and mercy. And Lord, I must admit, it's impossible not to want it in and of ourselves. We need the grace and rush of God's Holy Spirit to to fuse, to infuse us with his grace. Lord, I do pray that we would come as one man to this because of the one man Christ who died for us. We thank you that you have a passion, Christ, for the broken. Help them realize and help us realize you've not forgotten us. Even though the world acts like you have, you have not.